Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We'd also like to welcome our newest sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. Thank you very much for your support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And please, please rate us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us on iTunes. And if you have a fun story to tell, we'd love to hear that too. Now let's get to the show. Welcome again to Let's Hear It. And Eric, we start this week with the very poignant question. If you're looking at a banquet table that's just full of the best possible treats, what do you label one of the best treats on the table? What do you start a, with? That's about what we're about to get. We've had a banquet, a feast of <laughs> participants in this podcast. And I keep saying all these conversations are amazing and this conversation is amazing. This conversation is amazing. They're all amazing. <laughs> I love all my children. I love them equally. And I love this one a lot. So who are we about to hear? We are. I had a great conversation with Fred Blackwell, who is the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. Mm. San Francisco Foundation is a community foundation based in San Francisco. Very well named, huh? Uh, but <laughs> but serves the San Francisco Bay. So it, it doesn't just serve the city of San Francisco. Right. It has a much broader uh, reach than that. It's really a regional community foundation. And about three years ago, Fred, uh, he had been at the foundation for about a year, during which time he worked on putting together a strategy to focus the foundation's activities on achieving racial and economic equity in the Bay Area. This is not the sort of thing that many foundations are, mm. I don't know, willing to to attack or to take on. There, you have community foundations have donors. Donors can sometimes disagree with some of the goals of a foundation, and there, it's just not uncontroversial. And Fred went into it with a happy heart and mm. uh, an enthusiasm and goodwill and good cheer that you can hear in this conversation. But he has, I think, helped drive the San Francisco Foundation into becoming a really important participant in the community on tackling these really difficult issues around equity. That's housing and jobs and transportation. And can you keep your communities uh, connected in ways that uh, allow them to continue to thrive and to continue to have people from a variety of economic backgrounds working and living in, and engaging with each other in productive ways. Those are the big, big, big questions that cities in particular are trying to deal with. And Fred is taking that on head on, you know, like head on. Well, and the extraordinary wealth here makes these issues feel almost impossible. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Fair. That is very fair. So full disclosure, you call Mr. Blackwell one of your favorite people. Yes, he is. He's one of my favorite people. And I think you're going to understand why. From the second he starts talking, one of the big complaints I have about our podcast today is that we are trying to time limit these conversations because <laughs> this one, it didn't go on long enough as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Should we give it a listen? Let's. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this week is Fred Blackwell, the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. And okay, 
Again, I always sound like a, you know, a fanboy, but one of my favorite people in philanthropy. <laughs> and I'm so happy that you're, you've agreed to be on the show. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Eric. Pleasure. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation, I have to tell you. Um, all right. I honestly don't know where to start. So I guess we'll just start at the beginning. You are a, uh, a product of the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. And so you grew up in, in Oakland. Is that right? I def- definitely did. Can you talk a little bit about what your life was like growing up in Oakland? Life growing up in Oakland for me was pretty amazing because I got to see the city from so many different angles. Yeah, You and I have had this conversation before, so you know that I grew up in a family of people who were you know, fairly active in Oakland and active in Oakland from a social justice point of view. And so, you know, I got a chance to around the dinner table and through my work in the community and through, you know, the eyes of people who did a lot of work in the community, just get to know it from so many angles. I mean, I, my mom ran a nonprofit in Oakland that was focused in on reducing, reducing persistent poverty. My uncle, her brother, uh, ran an organization called OCUR, the Citizens Committee for Urban Renewal. And so saw it from that angle, but also, you know, Oakland is one of those places that is simultaneously big enough to have um, some influence, but small enough to get your arms around. And because of the size of Oakland, at least when I was growing up there, there was very little segregation by race or ethnicity or family economic status and that kind of stuff. So I just got a chance to grow up with and meet and run in the streets with just an amazing, diverse set of people. And, you know, those experiences have influenced, you know, my career, my life and uh, my thinking around how to address issues in places like Oakland. Well, your mom just didn't just run a a nonprofit. She's (laughs) Angela Glover Blackwell. She's a a legend in in this work. Yeah. I kind of be like being, I don't know what, Shakespeare's son or like something like that. So, you know, this incredibly, you know, um, po- powerful and important person. Well, do you feel a lot of pressure to like make something out of yourself? <laughs> you know, that's a, it's a, it's funny you say that. Cause I, as you can imagine, I get that all the time. And the way that I often talk about it and it's genuinely the way I think about it is that my mom, in my view, was so amazing and is so amazing that I haven't felt pressure to be like her because few people can. And so I kind of came to the conclusion pretty early on uh, that my best bet of kind of satisfying my ambition uh, would be to be the best that I could be uh-huh. rather than trying to be like her because uh, I, I, I always viewed it as an almost unattainable goal. Uh, that's, that's a very Fred-like thing to say, I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you are a glass half full fellow. Um, so you, so you, you went in most. You spent a lot of your career in city government, right? Yeah. And and you were a city. You studied city planning. Studied right? city planning. I stu- I studied urban studies at a Morehouse, which is my undergraduate school, and then I got a graduate degree in city planning. Uh-huh. And and you worked in the city of San Francisco and also in Oakland, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you've seen the belly of the beast. I have. I've seen all the sausage get made. And <laughs> what on earth are they throwing in that sausage bread? <laughs> you know, um some rats. No, some you know, cats. I I joke about my time uh in local government, but I honestly feel like, you know, it was some of the most rewarding work that I've been engaged in. And I definitely know that I would not be 
where I am today mm-hmm. had it not been for the time that I spent there. So while it was definitely hard work and sometimes thankless work, it was for me very rewarding. And okay, here's a question. I've been dying to ask you this question for a really long time. Yeah. So you were very briefly the city administrator in Oakland. Yeah. So you had you were interim and then your names and then very shortly thereafter you got offered the job at the San Francisco Foundation. Yeah. Was that awkward? Oh, um Eric, that was well just to answer your question, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Thank you for being so honest. What I was going to say before saying yes is it was one of the toughest decisions that I have ever made uh, in some cases. If you ever Google me, one of the first things that comes up is that episode or that uh, time in in my life and uh, the shock and all that uh, was associated with it. I, growing up in Oakland and growing up the way I described, pretty early on aspired to have the kind of position in Oakland that allowed me to be in the room when decisions were getting made um, about uh, the community. And it was the reason why I chose urban studies as a major. It was the reason why I chose uh, uh, city planning as a, a graduate degree. But when I got the offer to lead the San Francisco Foundation, I frankly saw it as a, an offer that I couldn't refuse. The uh, opportunity to work in Oakland and in San Francisco, in an organization that had a responsibility for thinking about the entire Bay Area, seemed like uh, the right place to be. Uh, it allowed me to utilize all the relationships and experiences that I had on uh, both sides of the Bay. And the opportunity to come to an organization that was unapologetically social justice oriented in terms of the way that it approached its work in the Bay Area with the kind of influence that the San Francisco Foundation had just didn't seem like the kind of opportunity that I should turn down. And I'd watched how long uh, Sandra had been in this job and the people before uh, her. And I also came to the conclusion uh, that if I didn't take the opportunity, I probably would never get it again. Huh. Well, so we've had this conversation on the, on this uh, on this podcast before, but foundations are one step removed, or it can be perceived as being one step removed for the job. And since you're a basketball fan, you you were on the you were on the hardwood uh, playing yeah. in the game, and now all of a sudden they sent you up to the skybox. You yeah. know, it's a nice skybox with a good bar, but it's still you're. Uh, yeah. one step removed from Eric, I would just I would just uh, edit that a little bit and okay. say it didn't be like being on the hardwood. I think I take uh, local government as akin to being on the ice. In <laughs> it's a contact sport, man. Gotcha. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> or maybe it's basketball game with ice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> or something. Good and where point. they let the fights go on that, longer. <laughs> that's right. Nobody goes, they didn't send anyone to the penalty box. It's a, maybe it's a steel cage match. But so what was that like? So you were really in the scrum. Uh-huh. It, uh, I mean, you know, the city was, I believe at the time there was a deficit. You were, you were really, Oakland yeah. was a, a tough place to run. Mm-hmm. And But I think a lot to be said for wanting to be in the middle of that. And so then mm-hmm. you came over to the San Francisco Foundation in which you had this look across mm-hmm. the fields and things like that. What was that like? Was it a hard transition? Yeah, there were a few things that were hard about it. I, you know, I would say, um, you know, one of the things that I learned and appreciated in local government uh, was the scale of the impact once you were able to navigate all the 
the bureaucracy and politics. And there's really nothing like it. And, you know, one of the things that I think about when I'm thinking critically about the field of philanthropy and uh, nonprofits is how many of us think that we can accomplish the lofty social goals that we have without engaging local government. And so that aspect of it, I missed. I also, you know, I joked about uh, it being a contact sport, um, but I learned a lot there too. I learned a lot about the value of conflict and disagreement in terms of often getting to a, a better solution for some of the things that we face. And so there were a couple of things that were different uh, when I came to philanthropy. One was, uh, you know, I walked into the San Francisco Foundation. I'll never forget my first day. It was so quiet. <laughs> um, you know, I I'd come from an environment where people were yelling down the hall and cussing at one another and engaging lively debate and discussion in the halls and around uh, the workplace. And I got here and there were crickets and I almost <laughs> wanted to turn over a table and uh, create some conflict when I got here. Um, so that was that was one thing. And I think the other thing that was um, a little bit different for me is I actually find uh, philanthropy to be a place that's kind of conflict averse. Mm -hmm. um, people are very from foundation to foundation, polite to one another. We can disagree with uh, what people are doing and not really raise much of a stink about it. And because of the the power dynamic that exists between uh, foundations and grant seekers, you don't hear a lot of critique uh, of your work. And so, you know, there was one period where I think I was about a year in and somebody asked me how I was doing. And I said, I, you know, I really don't know. And they said, why? I said, because it's been about a year since I've been yelled at at a community meeting. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I joke about it, but uh, it, it definitely was one of the things that I had to uh, get used to. And, you know, the, the politeness uh, as well as the scale. You know, we uh, are a very large community foundation. I mean, you know, our assets under management put us in the top 15 uh, nationwide. Uh, but, you know, because we, you know, spend 5% a year and uh, you know, we're facilitating the philanthropy of others. And on a good year, um, we're spending maybe, you know, $150 million, uh, with the work that we are doing. And, you know, when I was in um, city and county of San Francisco, I was managing a department that had a $300 million budget. And, uh, um, you know, in Oakland, when I was the city administrator, I had a billion-dollar annual budget. And so I admit when I first got here, um, the scale of the spending felt kind of boutique -y. Yeah. Well, it does it does make you want to ask the question if basically if what foundations or community foundations like this have is pocket change compared to even a you know a medium-sized government, mm -hmm. why do people care? What is it that a community foundation can do that these yeah. other people why are you why are you in the power and influence top 50 for the second year in a row? Yeah. I think As what it, I think you wouldn't what get it, a big enough head working at a foundation. I think I think what it is is I what I figured out pretty early in, in coming to the uh, foundation was that the real power here is actually in the influence. Uh the power mm -hmm. is in uh uh, the fact that if you sit at the front desk at the San Francisco Foundation, you will see everybody from the pastor at the church in uh, Richmond uh, to uh, the community leader running the nonprofit to uh, a local elected official uh, to a, a business person from the corporate community to a wealthy donor. You know, we just get all walks of life here. And I think the real opportunity in 
managing a, and leading a community foundation is figuring out how you harness those relationships mm-hmm. and get people mobilized and passionate about the things that need to happen in your backyard uh, in order to make it a big, better place to uh, live and work. And so I think um, the opportunity at the community foundations it, it's, is to kind of take that part of your DNA uh, that's about grant making and providing services to uh, donors and figuring out how to harness all that into influence and to use that influence and use that reputation to try to get other folks organized around the issues that you're engaged in. That's the real opportunity in community foundations. It's not really um, about the money. And, you know, I always hate when people with money say it's not about the money. <laughs> um, but in this case, it is. So I, I would right. modify that to say it is about the money. But it's also about how you use the influence that's associated with the money. Well, this is interesting because you're raising money and you're spe- – I would say that community foundations are in shipping and receiving. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're raising it and you are responding to the needs and the interests of your donors. And at the same time, you are exerting influence by mm-hmm. taking advantage of the of the partnerships that you can make and the relationships that you've created and then – you know, topping it up with with a little bit of money. How do you do? How do you play both sides of the check? Yeah, in that way, do you feel like there is that, that there is a tension involved in trying to raise money and meet the needs of your donors, and at the same time have your own voice? Or I think or that not? I think that for a lot of community foundations, there is tension uh, in that dynamic. But what is magical for me about the San Francisco Foundation is what I said earlier. It's laser-like focus on the Bay Area and its legacy for being social justice-oriented in that approach means that we have, over time, accumulated and attracted a set of donors that are really aligned with that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And so while I think some foundations or community foundations feel like the best way to approach the the money in or the receiving side of the shipping and receiving uh, is to be opaque as possible around what you believe in so you don't offend anybody or or repel anybody, we think just the opposite. We think that if we are really crisp and clear around what we believe in and we can show people that we are uh, moving the needle on those issues, that we end up attracting uh, folks who want to be associated with that work. And to the extent that we end up repelling some folks, we think that the um, the way that we're approaching it will attract more people than it will repel. And we think that that's been, uh, that, that theory has been uh, proven right over the last few years. Well, that's a great way of putting it. We're going to take a short break and be back with the second half of our conversation with Fred Blackwell. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And we're back with Fred Blackwell, the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. We're talking about community foundations. And, and one of the things that you guys have just pulled off is a monster partnership yeah. with about with like a 99-headed Hydra. <laughs> I'm just going to read the list of the people or the institutions in this collaboration. Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Ford Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, the Packard Foundation, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, 
Facebook, Genentech, the Local Initiative Support Corporation. Okay, and and this is a group working together to address housing and homelessness. Yeah. That sounds like a really complicated thing to pull off. Yeah. How's it going? Um, It's taken me back to my days in local government. Um, when you've got to figure out how to balance all the kind of interests and motivations and points of view um, and ideologies that uh, exist when you're trying to kind of be uh, the sit eye of the storm in a democracy. But what's great about it is I actually really believe that it is only uh, when you're able to strike those kinds of partnerships that you're able to achieve the level of uh, impact and scale that we are uh, seeking. Uh, my mom always tells me that if you come up uh, with a, a solution to a complex problem that only involves yourself, you either don't understand the problem or have the wrong solution. <laughs> and I, that has stuck with me. Uh, and I really believe that that is true. And so, you know, as hard as it is to navigate all that and uh, keep all of these interests together, to me, it's the only way to solve a problem with the scope and complexity and scale of the housing crisis um, in California. It's the only way that you assemble the kind of alliance that gets you policy wins. It's the only way that you assemble uh, the kind of dollars that will um, make a dent in an issue uh, like housing that is so expensive. And it's the only way uh, to pass my grandmother's smirk test, uh, (laughs) Which, you know, my grandmother's passed away, but she was the person who, when I explained to her what I was doing or something that I was trying to do, when I saw her start to smirk, I knew she thought it was BS. Uh, (laughs) And I always knew that I I wasn't explaining it in the right way or I wasn't going about it in the right way. Well, getting along (laughs) with people seems to be something you do pretty well. And maybe one of the, okay, again, I'm going to sound like an embarrassing fanboy, but you are one of the coolest people I know. (laughs) It is true. I have never seen you break a sweat. But I do remember a day uh, a couple of years ago when you showed showed your vulnerable side in a meeting here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember that day, but it, it stuck with me. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind talking just a little bit about how you do express your feelings in the context of really difficult work and a difficult time that we're living in. Yeah. Um, I think I know what you're talking about, Eric. It was probably... Um, during the period where it, at least it felt to me like every week we would um, see on the news or read in the newspaper uh, another African-American person who had fallen victim uh, to some kind of police violence. And it all really hit a crescendo in Dallas when uh, there was the shooting of officers there. And it it just felt to me like the whole thing was going uh, to hell in a handbasket. And um, it also felt to me that, you know, my community, um, and to be even more uh, direct about it, I felt vulnerable. Um, I felt that my people who I cared about, like my, my son and his friends were vulnerable. And it was a, it was a, um, it was a day when I was kind of overwhelmed with emotion. And the only time, other time that I have felt like that uh, was when the uprising in L.A. occurred in in response to uh, the acquittal of the uh, gentleman who um, assaulted Rodney King. 
Um, both of those times, it were times when I felt I felt like an outsider looking in, in a place where that was home to me. And that is a, a very painful feeling. Uh, and I remember that day, Eric, coming to work and feeling like I needed to, as the leader of this organization, provide the space for a conversation to be had because it was clear to me uh, that other people were hurting as well. But sitting in my car and having to really kind of gain my composure before I could actually come in here and lead, it was a real tough day for me. Mm -hmm. It was a meaningful day because I think you gave people permission to feel. Mm -hmm. And you know, leadership sometimes is like that, where people are looking up to somebody to help me think through these things or help me process these things. Yeah. And uh, I, I just, it's a day I'll remember for, for a really long time, if not forever, because because uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from you and about leadership, but I also learned about how organizations function together, and uh, and it was it was really important. Yeah. Along those lines, I mean, we are needless to say dealing with these fundamental questions about race and equity and inclusion. A lot of institutions are trying to grapple with this. I think a lot of people are struggling with it. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice do you have, or what kind of thoughts can you offer to People of all types and groups and classes and everything who, who, who just want to ask and answer these questions in some kind of meaningful way. Yeah, it's, that's a great question, Eric. And I have both been doing a lot of thinking about it and in um, speeches recently been trying to offer whatever tidbits of um, wisdom or advice I can. And there are a few things that I really focus in on. The first is that, particularly here in the Bay Area, we have an inconvenient truth that we need to recognize. And that inconvenient truth is that um, although we like to think about ourselves as a, you know, a dark blue region in a blue state or a progressive place in a, a place that is tolerant of differences, you know, black and brown and Southeast Asian and Native American populations in this community don't experience the Bay Area in that way. No matter what indicator you look at, whether it's income, unemployment, education, health, you name it, uh, there are some pretty stark disparities here in the Bay Area. And the reconciling uh, the fact that we are simultaneously one of the most diverse regions in the country and one of the most inequitable regions in the country is something that folks really have to grapple with. And, you know, I often uh, tell folks in uh, my speeches that acknowledgement is the first step in reconciliation. Uh, and we don't acknowledge enough uh, that we've got a problem around race here in the Bay Area and that you don't have to be witnessing protests about statues of Robert E. Lee in the park uh, in order for you to have a race problem. And so I think that that's the first thing. The, the second thing is talking about race is hard. It's emotional. People make mistakes. People's feelings get hurt. In a lot of instances, tears are shed. It's uncomfortable. Uh, and for that reason, we avoid talking about it. <laughs> and, you know, we like to talk about everything but race. Uh, you know, when, you know, folks want to talk about poverty and income and uh, gender and sexual orientation and all that stuff. And those are all important. I don't want to minimize them at all. Um, but when they are brought up as a way to distract from the conversation about race, that's a problem. And because we run from the 
the conversation, we don't spend the time to develop a language that allows us to talk about it. And so we've got to, the second thing that I really focus in on is the fact that in order to deal with these issues, you got to get comfortable with the discomfort associated with the conversation and be willing to, to stick with it. Uh, and so I think that's the, the second thing. And then the last thing I would say is too much of the, the vision for the places where we work, the vision for the country, the vision for the state, the vision for local places like Oakland and San Francisco is based on some uh, nostalgic view of what we used to be. And, you know, the most egregious example of that is make America great again. But, you know, people on the left fall victim to that as well. You know, you know, we talked about earlier, I grew up in Oakland. I'm surprised sometimes by uh, the people who I grew up with or activists in Oakland talking about um, wanting to go back to a, another a time in Oakland that used to exist. And, you know, uh, I love Oakland and I love every version of it. But I think that the best Oakland is in front of us mm. uh, as well as the best country. And so what we have to do, and this is difficult is um, envision a state of being that none of us has ever experienced before. And the way that my mom refers to that, and I love the phrase, is that we have to engage in radical imagination. Uh, and so I would just say, you know, acknowledging the race problem, being comfortable in the discomfort associated with talking about race, and having the ability to imagine a place where we uh, view our differences as gifts rather than things that divide us are, are the three challenges that I think if we all um, brought that to the table, we could end up in a different place. That's a, it's a really great way to put it. It reminds me, you know, I was thinking I had a conversation with Landon Williams, program officer here, yeah. who was former uh, Black Panther. And there was some kind of event going on and there was, you know, someone who was there was beer and wine. And I said, Hey, Len, you want to, let me buy you a beer. I was going to buy him a San Francisco foundation provided free beer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and he said, uh, no, 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 I, I, um, I can't cause I'm going to drive home. And I was like, well, you have beer, right? He's like, no, I can't cause I don't want to get stopped mm -hmm. and I don't feel comfortable. And I thought to myself, okay, that, that really does remind me of the divide in our different perspectives and, and Landon who has, has worked so hard for justice and has worked so hard on this stuff has feels, I think in some senses resigned uh, on some, some days mm -hmm. that he still doesn't have the rights that he fought so hard to achieve for himself and for others. And it just reminds me how far we have to go. But I, and you also tell this other story about running into the, uh, your son's friends mm. and how one of them told you that he types his, his driver's license to the dashboard. Mm-hmm in case he gets stopped mm -hmm. and, and how we're just not there yet. I, I am, I am heartened by your optimism, <laughs> uh, your, your enthusiasm for, for radical imagination. Mm -hmm. What would you say to young people now who are interested in coming into this field, into the nonprofit community or into God forbid philanthropy about what the, what role they can play to try and come up with this new state that you envision? Yeah. You know, um, I will tell you, Eric, one of the things that keeps me optimistic, frankly, is the enthusiasm, imagination, and creativity of young people. And so your question is a really important one. You know, I, I see um, the kind of activism and engagement um, that 
And, and like I said, imagination that young people are engaging in nowadays is fuel for optimism. And I've had the opportunity to be in front of groups of young people um, recently. And I try to always remember, um, I don't know if you've ever heard me tell uh, the, the story about the coffee bean. When you put a coffee, there's a difference between a coffee bean and a rock. And the difference is that if you take a glass of water and you put a rock in that glass, uh, it'll displace the water. You'll see a little bit of a ripple effect. It's not very long lasting. And more importantly, once you take the rock out of the water, the water just goes back to its pre-existing state. But when you put a coffee bean in water, it changes the color, uh, the smell, uh, the, the taste of the water. And even when you remove the coffee bean, the water is never the same. And so I always tell young people that story and I always end with telling them wherever they go, whether it's in their workplace or uh, in a community meeting or a community setting, um, to be the coffee bean uh, and to have that uh, long lasting effect on the rooms and places that they've been in uh, so that those institutions are never the same as a result of their presence. You're such an optimistic guy, or at least you, so much of the time, you're, you're, you exude an optimism, a sense, a, a real sense of hope. What, what are the things that now, looking, looking either back at your career or forward to the future, what are the things that give you hope? There are a few, a few things that give me hope. One is we just talked about it, you know, the, the energy and enthusiasm of young people and uh, the fact that uh, that energy and, and, and enthusiasm, at least at this point, is unencumbered by life experiences that tend to dampen all that. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that's one of the things that gives me uh, hope and optimism. And the other is probably maybe one that might surprise you, and that is um, change in this country comes about sometimes quite slowly, but eventually this country gets it right. And I just, you know, I'm constantly both disappointed and surprised by uh, the country that, that we're in. Uh, I'm disappointed because it's a never-ending fight, it feels like, to have it live up to its ideals and the promises that are laid out in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. But like I said, it always feels uh, like the momentum is taking us in that direction. Uh, and so for that reason, I, I always have hope and optimism. Well, it shows, that's for sure. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. You are, I, I, I don't know what, a ton of coffee beans. <laughs> you, you, you really have had such a great effect on people and, and really on this community. I, I just thank you for, uh, as, a, as a communications person, but as someone who really cares about this community, uh, on behalf of, I, I have no standing to thank you on behalf of anybody else, but I'm going to do it anyway. Thank you so much, Fred. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, and you know, keep up the great work. Thank you for having me. Okay, Eric Brown with Fred Blackwell, the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, um, which I don't know if you mentioned this, but the San Francisco Foundation is one of the largest 
community foundations in the United States. Yes, yeah? it, it has, and it has one of the largest endowments. A lot mm. of community foundations are serve as more or less as donor advised funds. So a donor will put their money into the community foundation, and then will direct the community foundation how they would like their funds to be distributed. And I have cheekily called some community foundations the money is like Olestra. <laughs> it just goes straight through the body. Whereas with the San Francisco Foundation is different because they are both they have an endowment, a fairly large endowment, and they are working with their donors to try and align the donors' funding around issues regarding equity. Not not um, you know exclusively. Donors come in and they would like to you know sure. support charities that they care about or have long uh, relationships with. That's perfectly fine, and they're very good at helping their donors do that. But they also have a very specific point of view, and they are working with many of their donors to f- to connect their hopes and dreams, their philanthropic <laughs> hopes and dreams, with these issues surrounding equity. And that so that's part of what this foundation does, and and that's uh, and it's one of the largest in that regard. So we've had the conversation at times on the podcast about the interesting journeys people take getting into this field. We've got a twist here because <laughs> Fred's got a fairly uh, uh, I would say famous mom. Yes, he does. So talk a little bit about that. And I'm wondering how long it's going to be before we get to have her on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fred's mom is Angela Glover Blackwell, who is the founder of Policy Link, which yeah. is an organization that is working surprise, surprise on equity. Fred has been living this issue as a resident of Oakland and yeah. as a member of the Blackwell family, his mm. uncle is also an organizer uh, for his entire life. And he is, it is a, it's always cool and interesting when you have a famous parent and the famous parent produces a, a, a child who is every bit as dynamic and cool and smart and engaging as the parent that some people will say, oh, I didn't know that Fred's mother was in the business, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's, you know, it's, it's high praise indeed because his mother is you know, really a, 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 such an important part of this community and such a, such a, you know, has been such a trailblazer that that's, that's really a cool thing to, to say. Well, and I, I could hear this again and again and again, that statement for every problem, there's a community coming up with the solution. Yeah. Like that's just, that notion was so great. And then he's got the great balance. He's saying, you know, my mom wasn't is so amazing. I haven't had any pressure right. because he's just <laughs> so amazing. So let's just go. That's pretty know? cool. So, and then, um, he also has a family full of people who said interesting and cool and funny things. <laughs> That's right. So it's just, this was- I want Fred's family. This was the dinner table conversation. Just yeah. listening to amazing things. So, um, and then he comes out of city government. He comes out of city government right. in both San Francisco and Oakland. And he says, I've seen all the sausage get made. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Because you've seen the transactional part of this life too. And and um, at the municipal level, I would say there's a ton of transaction going on around sure. all this. How do you think that helps or does it in any way hinder the ability to kind of look at this at a, at a philanthropic level across an entire community? Well, for him, he obviously has this incredible vantage point because yeah. when people tell him, oh, well, that can't be done, he can <laughs> respond like, oh, actually, it can be done and I've seen it done and here's how mm-hmm. you do it. Mm-hmm. So let's just have an honest conversation this time. What is your actual barrier and What and how do we overcome that? Yeah, uh, I think that, that that understanding of the deep 
like this deep understanding about things actually work mm. is really important. It the fact that Fred doesn't just curl up in the corner, hold himself and rock back and forth <laughs> in in this city is a testament both to I think his vision because he sees something that many people don't see and his hopeless incredible optimism and and kind of faith in the future. Well, isn't it so reassuring too? And I had this exact same experience hearing you talk with Jim Canales about the work with the Bar Foundation in Boston, but these local leaders working with such humility and authenticity, but just diligence, right? To yep. push these values forward. And um, you asked him about the transition going from, you know, city government into the foundation world. And I loved, he went from the hardwood to the skybox, you know, <laughs> and that you're kind of one step to remove. <laughs> And uh, he's a big basketball fan. He yeah. uses basketball metaphors. Well, he's it's, talking it's about, you know, right, the, with you. right, the hockey metaphor too. It's like, you know, it's a full context <laughs> for it. You know, it's like Oakland, it's, you're in the scrum and Oakland, he said a scrummy. You know what I mean? Like there's lots Very of scrums scrummy. going on. Um, but, uh, and you asked him about that transition. Um, I actually thought that your conversation about the scale of resources that community foundations have access to and, and where influence really comes from. I felt like Fred also came back to some of these themes that we've heard Jim and others bring forward about the power of influence and the role right. of community foundations in, in elevating that. And since you have sat in the bones of these foundations, what, what would you say about that? Or what do you, what do you make about that? The San Francisco foundation is a, an, a place where the, the people who work at that foundation have, if you ask me, true standing in the community. If you want to work in communities in San Francisco, if you're a funder and you and you really want to understand how things work, what has to happen, and to work with somebody who actually has their kind of, I don't know, I don't want to call them tentacles, but you know, just influence and connections in the community, the San Francisco Foundation is your partner. And that's I think one of the powers of a community foundation, it's not the money, even though they're able to, you know, bring resources into the enterprise, but it's all of those things. It's the connection, the ability to convene lots of folks, the people who walk through the lobby, yeah. uh, Alfred Ironside Love it. talks about, and I don't know if his episode is going to come before or after this one. So <laughs> who knows? Either this is a preview or a review. Right. <laughs> That's what happens when you have a fluid schedule. <laughs> but Alfred talks about the people who walk through the lobby at the Ford Foundation. The same is eminently true about people who walk through the lobby at the San Francisco Foundation. You have community organizers. Yeah. You have mayors. You have elected officials. You have former elected officials. You have decision makers, power brokers. And you have people who are... They're working in the in the community. They're they you know they don't have expensive suits. They're just really rolling up their sleeves and doing hard work. And that's why the San Francisco Foundation is an interesting place. And I think that's one of the values that community foundations have that make them such useful and important resources well beyond whatever money they might be able to invest in a problem. In Fred, yeah, he talked about that, that at the front desk, you see everybody. Yeah. And the community, you see the pastor, the community leader, the right. local elected, the business people, the wealthy donor. So everybody is coming through the front door. And he talks about this partnership that the San Francisco Foundation is now sitting at the center of to address housing and homelessness right. in the Bay Area. And man alive, when he started, when you guys started going through that, I was like, this is the dream, isn't it? That the community foundation can sit at the center 
and all the different entities that are part of that. Cause I mean, there are scale level yep. professional foundations involved all the way mm-hmm. through, I'm sure to community leadership. And yet as he was, as that conversation was going, I was thinking, you know what, the collaboration, the element underneath this of getting all of those actors who I, I would imagine deeply share certain values, yes. getting them aligned and working that way together must've been an incredible effort of, to bring people together and, and make all that go. Would you say? Collaboration is tricky. Huh. <laughs> the only thing worse than collaboration is no collaboration. <laughs> and that's, I, he, he made that remark, a version of that, uh, one some family members, his mom. Yeah, was it his mom? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember <laughs> yes. his mom or his uncle. But yeah, like if you're if you're not collaborating with somebody, and then either what is the problem is is right. too small, or you have a <laughs> if you have a solution that only involves yourself, you don't understand the problem, or you have the wrong solution. Thank you, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. I need you to follow me around to remind yeah. me of stuff. <laughs> that's great. That's but great. it's true. And my old boss, Larry Kramer at the Hewlett Foundation, writes about collaboration. Mm-hmm. I think Paul Brass his predecessor wrote about collaboration as this is hard work. It is definitely hard work, but mm. it is essential work. And I think that this collaboration has the potential to to really, really produce some outsized benefits. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, a couple more things I'd like to cover before we, um, before we unfortunately have to end this, but in terms of our time limits, but then you hit what I've come to characterize as the 20 minute moment in these oh, conversations. Geez, you no, know, this is always <laughs> your driveway gets, moment. <laughs> it gets super rich. So you start talking about Fred's leadership in dealing with questions of race, equity, and inclusion. And you even um, mention a moment in mm-hmm. a meeting recently where Fred was reflecting on what was coming out of the new cycle. Yeah. It was a couple very, of years ago. This is 16, I think. But you brought it up in a sense of here's a new leader in the context of his, of his, you know, new cohort, mm-hmm. basically, right? Colleagues and his willingness yep. to actually be very honest about his feelings about what was going on. And I, I just, that whole thread, um, I just, I just thought it was great. I thought it was important to hear. And I would, and I loved how you guys went back and forth on that. Yeah. He's, he's an honest candid guy. He's happy. He always has a smile on his face. He, you never see him sweat, but on that day he showed, he revealed something that he needed to share. Mm. And that's a great sign of leadership. And courage, I would say. Sure. Courageousness. Finally, what would you say to young people? And he closes, Uh, closes with the story of the coffee bean. Busts out the coffee bean story. I, okay. No, it's a Full, good story. I never heard the coffee bean story. It's a good story. And now I'm going to tell the coffee bean story. And it's funny, you know, we've had this experience recently where watching young people putting interns in the context of new experiences, the mutual transformation that comes out of that. It's funny, a, a dear friend of mine is a teacher, has taught for many, many years. And now I get it. You've got a hundred of these young minds that you're cultivating every year and just how powerful that is to yeah. see happen. So. Man, the coffee bean story. Let's all be the coffee yeah. bean. Oh, I knew the coffee bean story would, would speak to you, Kirk, because <laughs> you you set the alarm for 3 a.m. so you could get up and have more coffee. It's true. So you, I've never it's seen true. you without a cup of coffee. It's true. It's true. I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the caffeine IV and I will I will buy it. I will use it. I will use it. Um, but uh yeah, he just reflects on the energy and enthusiasm of of young people. So and and I do think you have standing to say thank you to Fred, by the way. And ah, I do think that Fred deserves right, right. thanks. And and this is one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast series is the opportunity to say in whatever public way we want to to these people of standing in this field who again I just go crazy over the fact that so often they're to- they're toiling in the background. 
So for as much as Fred is a local leader and has prominence, he still is not leading my news every night. Right. You know? That's right. And um, so I do think there's a genuine thank you. Yeah. Right. I, I, I really do appreciate I appreciate each and every, like I said at the, at the top, <laughs> each and every person we talk to. But we pick them because they're interesting and they have so much to offer and that we all can learn so much from them. And you're right. They do deserve thanks. And I guess we all have a right to say thank you. That's for sure. Well, we're the beneficiaries. Yeah. So let's say thanks. That's right. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Brown. That was fun. <laughs> Till next time. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have in the show, and that includes yourself. And we'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator, Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven, John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music, Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Lumina Foundation for their incredibly generous support. We are especially excited to welcome our newest sponsor, the Heinz Endowments. And be sure to check out their podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at Heinz.org slash podcasts. Thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. And we certainly thank our guests and, of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it.